and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me different sayings that mean a lot to me uh, things that I strive for recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say I'm going to break the mold two days after my second injury my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home went right up to my room slept for a day and then I woke up the next morning I spray painted my wall no quit me I remember you know there is no quit me and I won't you know I won't give up thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy and whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have you are listening to intentional performers with brian levinson where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self as we talk with them The hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today. And when I'm not recording on this podcast, I work as a mental performance coach, which gives me the opportunity to work with both elite performers in business and sports. And I help them develop their mindset. I help them unlock their potential from within. And I love what I do for a living. So I started this podcast with a simple mission in mind. How are people intentionally setting their mind to be their best? So we aim to unpack just that and bring intentional gems to you, the listener. Now, before we get started, there's a few things we would love from you to help us out. The first is for you to go over to our Patreon homepage. So Patreon is a website that allows creators like me to earn different revenue streams for the work that we do. So if you go to patreon.com backslash intentional performers, you can support the podcast by as little as a couple dollars a month to as much as $10 a month. And we are grateful to those who have already gone over and supported the podcast that way. We're also grateful for those of you that are sharing this podcast. Just this weekend, I had somebody come up to me at a market in Bethesda, my hometown, and tell me that her sister had actually introduced her to the podcast and she loved it. So uh, this is reaching people and I am grateful for those of you that are helping us expand our reach. So please keep on sharing on social media, anywhere from LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is that you're social. We are grateful for all of you that are sharing these conversations. The other easy way that you can help us out is go over to iTunes and write us a review. Once again, it really does help create awareness for the podcast and helps us as we continue to build this out. Uh, The amount of downloads that we're getting each month is increasing, and we are just grateful for all of you that continue to share these conversations. Now to today's guest. Today, we chat with Ken Harbaugh. Ken has spent a lifetime in service for his country, the United States. He grew up in a military family, the son and grandson of Air Force combat pilots. And when it was his turn after graduating from Duke University, Ken joined up with the Navy to lead recon missions in the Middle East and off of North Korea. Like his father and grandfather before him, Ken learned that duty and honor are not just words, they are promises. So you're going to find out from this conversation that Ken is a value-driven guy. And when he sees the need for action, 
He takes action. And you'll also find out that Ken is a family man. He's a loyal husband and a devoted father, which he takes great pride in, as you'll hear in our conversation. When his second daughter was born, unfortunately, she needed multiple surgeries. And Ken took a tough job, which often led to him spending weeks away from his wife and kids so that his family would have health care and his daughter would have the treatment that she required. Throughout that ordeal, Ken stayed true to his ideals of duty and honor, and he became a leading advocate for military veterans, most recently serving as president of Team Rubicon Global, which we will talk a lot about. They do incredible work as an aid organization that has trained more than 45,000 military veterans to deploy to natural disasters in the U.S. and around the world. So Ken has worked as a pilot, he's worked for Team Rubicon, and been in crisis situations all over the world, and now Ken is running for Congress in Ohio. So Ken is someone who has always put his country first, but now he's really trying to change the game in Washington and try to make an impact on a more macro and a more granular scale. So Ken is somebody who's full of courage, he is someone, as I said earlier, is full of action, and he is somebody who's not afraid to get his hands dirty and do the work. I recently heard Ken speak and was inspired enough to have him come on the podcast. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Ken. And when you do, as I mentioned earlier, please share it. We need more politicians like Ken, more honest people that have integrity and want to make change for the right reasons. Obviously, today in our society, politics is certainly a lightning rod for conversation. But I hope you'll just enjoy this conversation about a man who has had quite a journey up until now and hopes to make an even bigger impact impact in years to come. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Ken Harbaugh. Ken, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. Really excited to chat with you because you have a wealth of experience that I think your mindset probably played a role in. Uh, The first thing I was curious about is why military? Why even go that route? Why become a pilot? If you could start there and just give me an idea of what went into that decision? Yeah, great question. And I never imagined myself on that path, to be perfectly honest with you. I, I had cobbled together enough um, little scholarships to, to pay for college, and I, and I worked through school. Uh, so I didn't take the ROTC scholarship, but I found myself two-thirds of the way through thinking about... <clears throat> whether I had done anything real, whether I had done anything to deserve the privileges I was enjoying as an American. And the answer was no. And I was, I was studying overseas at the time. And that sure has a way of making you appreciate just how lucky we are to be Americans. At the very week that I got back to the States, I walked into the recruiter's office and said, I want to join the Navy. And uh, finished my my degree and a week later was off at officer candidate school and a year after that had my my wings and was uh, on my way to my operational squadron. Where were you at college? I went to Duke undergrad, but not in the ROTC. We're, we're broadcasting it in Maryland right yes, now. We are. For a long time, that would not be a welcome thing. But we've had we've had a couple of Dukies on here. We've cool. had Danny Ferry on nice. here. We've had Elton Brand on here. Right. So you're in a good Duke company. But I didn't know that ahead of time. <laughs> I they're saw gonna, some of them play. <laughs> they're gonna max out my uh, my Duke limit. So you're at Duke. Uh, you go abroad. But a lot of kids are graduating from Duke. I'm ma- I'm imagining most of them did not take your path afterwards. So 
yes, it's like, okay, I haven't done anything yet, but is there anything background-wise that led you yeah. to, to military? You bet. My my grandfather was a, a B-17 pilot, a bomber pilot in World War II, and was was badly injured on a mission over New Ireland and the Pacific, the way he, he tells the story, and it's 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 something, uh, was that every single member of his crew was injured. He was flying a recon mission, and his plane, flying solo, was jumped by an, an entire squadron of enemy fighters. He took himself a 20-millimeter round through his thigh that blew up in the cockpit between him and his co-pilot, cut his co-pilot's neck open. He was able to get a, a tourniquet around his leg, but the windscreen was blown out uh, and managed to limp the plane back home. Um, I grew up on stories like that. My dad flew Phantoms, uh, F-4s in Vietnam, did three tours. I I grew up on the stories of people who had risked a lot and sacrificed a lot for the country. And I'm sure that was weighing on me when I had this, this moment, um, this realization that I hadn't done my part. And I brought that back to the States with me and uh, that that's what led me into, into the recruiter's office. But I, I got to tell you, I got a grandfather who was an Air Force pilot, a dad who was an Air Force pilot. My brother was at the Air Force Academy at the time. He was an F-16 pilot now. Uh, and uh, my my version of rebelling was to go join the Navy, uh, which I, I, in, in hindsight, not all that rebellious. I could have done something a lot simpler, like gotten an earring or something, but I decided to be a Navy pilot. And growing up, what was your vision for yourself as a kid? Did you see yourself as a pilot or did you see yourself doing something else? I thought I was going to be a marine biologist. And I, I went to school for that. When I was studying abroad, I was actually studying marine biology. Um, and uh, and as a kid, that's that's what I thought my, my path would be. But uh, I, I realized that, that I needed to do do something in the service of my country first. And so I joined the Navy and I got out in 2005 and in, in the middle of a war. And my, my path after the Navy led me to, to continue my service as, as president of a disaster relief organization, Team Rubicon, that, that not only has as its primary mission, helping disaster victims on, on the worst days of their lives, but also helping give veterans uh, a renewed sense of, of purpose and community. We've retrained 50,000 of them now to deploy into disaster zones. Go back for me a little bit. So why the Navy? Why not Air Force? Was that purely rebellion or what was drawing you to the Navy? I don't know. Uh, I think there might have been some, some rebellion there, but I, I liked the idea of being a Navy pilot. And I... I knew from listening to my my dad and brother that being a Navy pilot was was different in that even as a junior officer in the Navy, you were going to be given some pretty significant leadership responsibility. I mean, my brother's job as a pilot was to fly airplanes for most of the, the first 15 years of his career. That's what he was trained to do, and that's what he did. My job as a as a Navy pilot, especially as a signals intelligence pilot, was, of course, to be the best damn pilot I could be, but to lead a crew, uh, to lead an air crew as an EP3 pilot, 
and to lead teams on the ground as a tactics officer. I, I worked in the operations division and I liked the, the Navy's approach to leadership and thrusting young, uh, young sailors and, and young officers into leadership positions early on. What was their uh, thoughts on leadership? What were some of the things that they taught when it came to leadership? The, the Navy or my, uh, Na- my family? Navy. A couple that, that might sound a little inside baseball, but they really stand out to me. Listen to your chiefs. And by that, I mean uh, there is moral leadership and positional leadership. Positional leadership is, I think, what all too many folks fall back on. It's the, the, the leadership you, uh, you exercise by virtue of the title you have. It's not real leadership. And then there's moral leadership, which is leading by example, uh, leading from the front, uh, and listening to your chiefs means recognizing that the people in your unit who may on the org chart, on the organizational chart, on the, the hierarchy, uh, not they may be subordinate, they have a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience, a wealth of moral authority that if you don't tap into early on as a brand new leader in that squadron, in that unit, you're going to miss out and you may well fail. What was the training like to become a Navy pilot? A couple of different pathways for that. The The first training is uh, is on the ground training, making sure you can, uh, you can, I guess, survive the rigors of the, the actual flight training and what might happen if things go wrong. So you go through a phase where, where you prove that you can get out of a plane that's crashed in the water and flipped over and is upside down. Or if you're a helo pilot, there's the, the dunker, which has you strapped into a, uh, basically a can, a giant, can lights are turned off it they drop it from a certain height into a into a pool and then it goes upside down and um you're blindfolded and you have to figure out how to get out of the thing so you go through the the basic um i'm not sure what you call it survival training aptitude training like that and if you clear that then you get to the actual primary flight training which is just day after day in the cockpit learning all of the basics of, of flight formation and uh, and, uh, and 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 landing and emergencies and things like that. And had you flown at all before you before you did this? Not really. When I was in that um, survival training, I decided to to go up in a, in a Cessna a couple of times to to try to get a, a, um, a little bit of a head start, but it, it wasn't worth much. They really do teach you everything you need to know if you if you're able to pick it up fast enough. And this comes from somebody who has always been curious about just flying planes in general. Yeah, what's it like when you're in it? What 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 do you like mentally? Where where are you at? If you could take us to those moments where you're you're flying a plane, you know, most of the time that I was flying, I was so focused on a job that I wasn't really in a place to appreciate the flying itself. Especially when we were operational, when I was flying um, flying missions, intelligence missions. But there were a couple of moments where I just sat back and realized this is pretty extraordinary. What, what I'm seeing, what I'm doing here. It's funny. I was telling the kids at dinner, just 
I think it was last night, about St. Elmo's fire, which is a phenomenon uh, that happens infrequently. But when you're at a certain altitude with certain meteorological conditions, you get these bursts of lightning covering the airplane. And if you don't touch them, they're relatively harmless, but it's, it's strikingly beautiful. These bright blue and purple bursts of lightning that look like fan coral covering the windows. And there are, there are moments like that, or taking off into a sunrise for a, a mission off of North Korea in the early, early morning, looking over at Mount Fuji on your way down. I mean, some really extraordinary moments. But for the most part, just working hard to get the missions done. Yeah, so you mentioned it's just focused on doing your job. Yeah. Walk us through what the process is even before you're in flight and how that involve, how that looks like, what doing your job looks like, and then once you're in the air, what doing yeah. your job looks like. So for the vast majority of, of my missions, we would pre-brief, begin pre-brief two hours ahead of time. So you get there uh, for a, a three for five, that would be a, a 3 a.m. pre-brief for a 5 a.m. takeoff uh, heading out uh, over, um, over water to your, your AOR, your area of responsibility where you're flying your mission. And that pre-brief covers everything from your route to the threats you might face on the way or, or face there to your fuel planning. Uh, and then when you're in the air, the main concern as a signals intelligence or, or combat recon pilot is is making sure you're aware of of all the potential threats to the aircraft and making sure you're you're doing the other part of the job which is signals intelligence and and keeping the the plane safe through the course of that so as an aircraft commander your main responsibility is for the aircraft and crew i eventually became a mission commander in which case you have a a dual sometimes a divided responsibility primarily to the mission even in extremis at the expense of the aircraft and crew. Uh, but you have to weigh both of those as a mission commander. Get the mission done first. When you're in the air, are you basically trusting in your training at that point, or how much of it is instincts? Uh, walk us through the mindset when you're in the air. Not a lot of instinct. Honestly, if you're flying by, uh, by, by, by instinct, you're in a pretty tough spot. Um, you almost always even in crises, fall back on training. That's what the training is there for. Uh, it's to prepare you for those moments so you don't have to rely on on instinct. I think most people aren't instinctive flyers. Uh, my, my brother might be a rare exception, one of the most <clears throat> unnaturally uh, intuitive and instinctive pilots I've ever, I've ever flown with. But um, I why, was, why, why do you think he is? I don't know. I don't know. But I do remember flying simulators with him and seeing him do things that, that I couldn't have done with all the training in the world. Uh, I, I fell back on, on my training, as the vast majority of pilots do. Uh, as the vast majority of military people do. They prepare you for those moments, like you know, losing engines. I think I mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier, Brian, losing an engine on one of those missions off North Korea. There was nothing instinctive about our response to that we went by the book and it was you know it was a little little scary but we had prepared for exactly that moment losing an engine on a mission off of north korea and we we dealt with it we put the engine to bed we actually finished the mission and we got the plane down and, and saved the crew so most people won't be in a position where they've lost an engine and it's literally a matter of life and death but they might be in a position where they have surgery and they're a doctor or they're a lawyer and they're at court or 
you know, they are a construction worker and they're doing their job and they have moments that the emotion or the anxiety raises and they still have to perform. Any idea how you were able to still perform in that moment? I think you hit it on the head when you talked about going back to your training. And there's another phenomenon at work, which which a lot of people ask me about when they when they ask about that that moment off of North Korea or honestly the probably the the more terrifying moments in aviation are weather related believe it or not just kind of ordinary but uh one of the the toughest missions I had had nothing to do with losing an engine or getting jumped by <clears throat> by by interceptors it was landing in a sandstorm or trying to beat a sandstorm uh, in in the Middle East, and it hit the far end of the runway as we were on the approach, and I knew I had to get that plane down or that thing was going to be on top of us. And in the moment, there, there wasn't any real sense of fear. You're just so locked in to, to what you need to do. But I remember a couple of occasions like that where after the engines were shut down, after everyone was uh was filing out of the plane and before we were before we were in the debrief this adrenaline crash and you just have this this moment where um where you realize how how close you cut it and it, it, it that's the emotional moment it's not actually when you're uh, to your example when you're in the surgery or or in court <clears throat> that 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 catches up with you but it hits you later and i think you need to be open to that you mentioned debrief I haven't spoken to too many Navy pilots, but I, one of the, the groups of people that I love studying are the Blue Angels. Oh, yeah. And if anyone's seen the Blue Angels, the precision of that uh, and how they train the Angels. And they talk about the debrief being essential to yep. that process. Uh, what does the debrief look like for, for you as a, as a pilot? So the most important thing about the debrief, and, and if you've observed how the Blue Angels do it, you want to address every deficiency encountered during that performance or during that that mission, and you don't hold back. Um, you, on a crewed aircraft, you level with everybody. You say this went well, this didn't, and we got to get this better next time. Uh, you you debrief every nuance of the mission so that you can get it right. On the next mission, the neat thing about the Blue Angels is the pre-brief where they literally, with their eyes closed around the table, they fly the whole show uh, in their in their heads before they ever step into the cockpit. So would you guys visualize? By initially, I, in training, I absolutely visualized every maneuver, uh, every, every flight um, before I would hop into the cockpit, flying SIGINT missions. Uh, we we didn't visualize because we we weren't doing really complicated aerial maneuvers, but I did think very closely about the track and where the the threats were. I thought from start to finish through every single mission and where we needed to go and where we needed to turn and and where I really needed to be on alert on guard uh, for or anything that might be coming at us. Were there any other routines that you would do before you head up? Uh- in there, you mentioned the pre-brief, pre-brief with the angels, and I, I, like the idea of a pre-brief and then a debrief. I, I'm fascinated by that sort of whole process. Yeah. I would always 
do my best to get a great night's sleep the night before. That's critical. Afterwards, especially after a long mission, I would try to get a workout in. I know it sounds kind of ordinary, but having that 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 physical release after what is really an intense mental exercise, uh, an intelligence flight like that was really important to, to clear my mind and get ready for the next one. What does exercise do for you? Uh, is it just not thinking and, and letting go? Is it the release or is there other other reasons for it's, doing that? It's both of those things. There's the the physical release, which I'm sure you you know more about this than I do, but the endorphins and the effect that that, that has in, in releasing stress. But it's also, as as you put it, kind of clearing your mind and 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 going blank and a good enough workout allows you to do that. Just forget about everything, but the pain you're going through in that moment or um, the exertion you're going through at that moment. And that's really helpful for, for resetting. You've mentioned leadership and being part of a team. Talk about that relationship that you had with your crew and what that was like for you. Again, leading by example is absolutely critical. Another component that you learn in the Navy and, and I think other teams do it really well. Uh, is sailors eat first. And that's shorthand for you put the needs of your team before the needs of yourself. Uh, and in the Navy, I was an, an officer, but I made sure that my enlisted crew members came first, whether it was uh, making sure they they got rested or, or fed uh, or, you know, they got families too and, and personal issues and you got to be attuned to those. Because if you have a team that is not uh, fully focused on the mission, then you're going to have a weak link, and, and that's where that's where things go wrong. At Team Rubicon, where we applied those same leadership lessons, one of our one of our mottos was "Change your socks," which speaks to the importance of taking care of yourself, making sure team members are taken care of in the moments where they have that luxury so that when we do need to march or do need to sprint, our feet are going to get us there. It's a metaphor, but I think you get it. Change your socks so that you're ready for hardship because it's coming. Let's talk about Team Rubicon because I I find it fascinating. So first, give us a little more background on on what Team Rubicon did, who was part of that. uh, And also, I'm not... I think your story isn't a clean transition to there. I think there's maybe some other stuff along the way. So just try to connect the dots for yeah, us sure. as you as you leave the Navy. So left the Navy, went back to to law school, um, and and that honestly was was a tough decision. Probably the the second toughest decision of my professional career, leaving the Navy in 2005 in the middle of of a war when buddies of mine were were still deploying, but. I looked at my two-week-old daughter, and and I thought um, it's going to take a a better, tougher man than me to 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 go. And I stayed and went to law school. And real quick, yeah, I'm sure you're you had buddies that that did that and have lived that and mm-hmm. stay and their sacrifices completely to the country and and they live it. Um, I've had Navy SEALs on here, and they'll talk about. Hey, they left, but God bless those guys who are, you know, in their forties and fifties yeah. and continue to serve 
And those, the guys who I've spoken to said, that wasn't me, but I have the ultimate respect for yeah. them. Um, but that they didn't have that in them. Yeah. Talk about those guys and, and, and that life. Cause I think a lot of people certainly until I've started trying to talk with more military people don't realize that a lot of people stay and stay yeah. and stay. And that's their, that's their life. Well, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for those who have it in them to do it. We're a country that's been at war for 17 years, the longest wars in our history. And unless we got good people leading over there, um, we're going to, we're going to lose more than we should. And, uh, I, I think, thank God that people like my brother who's still in have made that decision to, to maintain that, that service and that sacrifice, um, so that others don't have to. Um, and I, I count myself as one of the lucky ones who, um, by by virtue of the service of others was was able to get out and and start a family and like i was saying went back to school and eventually found myself fighting for vets and and the necessity of getting giving returning vets the opportunity to reintegrate through serving their communities and not just being seen as charity cases and Team Rubicon is the best example of that. I, I joined Team Rubicon um, in in 2013 as COO of the American uh, Team Rubicon USA, the American uh, part of Team Rubicon, uh, eventually became president of Team Rubicon Global. And what the organization does is retrain military vets, mostly from my generation, post 9-11 vets, to deploy into disaster zones around the world. We've retrained 50,000 plus military vets to, to deploy uh, into disasters and, and help other people on the worst days of their lives. But through that, um, help themselves as well. When you were getting your, your JD, what were you thinking you were going to do with that? <laughs> I, I didn't ever imagine myself running a disaster relief organization. I, I thought I might be a lawyer. I mean, that's that's probably what a lot of people think when they go to law school. But I had this moment sitting in a cafe across the corner from the law school when a couple army trucks rumbled by, probably from one of the armories north of town, and a, a kid next to me said, uh, he was trying to be funny, but he said it loud enough for everyone to hear, <clears throat> what, is there a war going on? And this was two thousand. Six. Not only was there one war going on, there were two. And I remember something in me snapping, and I stood up, actually knocked my drink over, and I was going to walk over and give this kid a piece of my mind until I realized, you know, it's it's not his fault. We've created these bubbles. There's a reason the vast majority of Americans don't appreciate that we are still at war. And I resolved then and there to to do something about it, to, to help change the narrative about my generation of vets so that we can come home to a country that sees us as assets and not liabilities. Okay, Ken, so now we have two massive stories or massive turning points. One is you're at Duke, and I'm sure there are opportunities. You know, Duke's a great school, graduate from there, maybe you're a marine biologist, you, you go yeah, on, you right. go on your way. But so a bigger calling is calling on you, and you decide to shift course from what a lot of people you were graduating with at Duke were planning to do. 
now you're at Yale. <laughs> so we're not talking about like lower T and instead of following a path that is, I'll just say traditional, you have to, you say, I want to turn and, and go in a different direction. Yeah. I'm curious what, how did that ability or desire to shift from what is traditional come about for you? I don't know. I, I don't have a, a super introspective answer there, except to say that at least in, in the case of the decision I, I made in law school, it was, it was deeply personal, deeply emotional because I was thinking about the buddies of mine who, who didn't come back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I remember driving down to Bethesda Naval Hospital shortly after that incident in the coffee shop, and I had this this really naive and probably selfish notion that uh, I was going to show up there, <clears throat> uh, and and I was going to provide some company and comfort to the Marines recovering there. Bethesda, of course, is where uh, a lot of our Marines begin their long journey to recovery. And when I got there, exactly the opposite happened. I was the one who had my my faith restored, uh, who got a, a sense of purpose by being there, because every single one of the Marines I talked to said that what they wanted more than anything was to get back to their units. And that was humbling. It was inspiring. And I knew that a lot of them wouldn't be able to do that just by by virtue of how badly hurt they were. But what they were really saying is that they wanted to be useful again. They wanted to find a way to serve again. And and I'll never forget what one of them said to me as he was about to be wheeled into his 10th reconstructive surgery. He said, sir, I lost my legs, but that's it. I didn't lose my desire to serve or my pride in being an American. And if an encounter like that isn't en- enough to, to get you to, to reconsider the the typical path versus an alternative path. I, I don't know what would. For me, I brought that home. I brought that encounter with that one Marine home and said, we got to do something better for this generation of vets so that we do see them as assets, not liabilities. So this may seem like a minor question, but I'm curious, like, why are you even in Bethesda? Like, what what even caused you to go to the hospital and, and go visit those people? Buddy of mine uh, had just, I just got word he'd been blown up in a uh, suicide drug palm attack in Fallujah. And I couldn't be with him, but I thought I could be with um, some fellow patriots who, uh, who had made similar sacrifices. And so almost in a daze, I found myself in the truck driving down to Bethesda. So when your intuition kicks in in those instances you you take action yeah i definitely i've i've always been action oriented or i don't know if you'll have to bleep this out but no i i told you one of our mottos at team rubicon was change your socks that was about two or three down our our top institutional value was get shit done get shit done it doesn't matter how much talking you do if you're not going to actually execute. And especially in disasters, there are moments where all the planning in the world isn't going to help you. You just need to act. 
Uh, now, that's not to say we don't plan. We absolutely plan. We plan contingency after contingency. But well aware that the moment boots hit the ground, 90% of that planning is going to go out the window. and You need to be prepared to act. So can you give me your mindset during preparation and planning and then maybe how your mindset might shift when you're in pure action mode? Yeah. The mindset, especially for a Team Rubicon deployment during preparation and planning, is to envision worst case and to prepare for the worst case. Uh, I think the the phrase goes, what, hope for the best, plan for the worst. Uh, and knowing full well that even prepping for the worst, even preparing for the worst, all the planning in the world isn't going to be able to cover every contingency. And for what it's worth, I think that is Team Rubicon's uh, secret uh, unfair advantage over, over other organizations. We, we built the organization on the backs of military vets who have a real aptitude for solving problems in the midst of a crisis, for uh, dropping into situations and getting shit done with a bare minimum of resources. And on top of that, being able to function in teams, <clears throat> excuse me, that are, that are thrown together at the last minute. Uh, but planning has a heck of a lot to do with it, planning and training. We, we train all of our deployers to a, a very high standard, uh, and then we, we trust them to make tough decisions in the field. What's the training like? Depends on the the pipeline they're going into. We'll do everything from everyone has baseline training so that we all speak the same language. Uh, if we're doing a tornado recovery that is um, that is mostly you know or a flood recovery that's mostly muckouts, uh, it's uh, fairly basic safety training. If it's a tornado response, that's a lot of chainsaw work. We have different levels of Sawyer training to get our chainsaw folks trained up. If we're fighting wildfires out West, we go through the full wildland firefighter two type training, which, which I've been through. And that's a pretty rigorous course. I mean, we have um, dozens of training programs we can put people through based on the, the specialty they're pursuing. So interesting. I think a lot of times we mix preparation and practice uh, mm -hmm. And we sort of think they're both the same thing. But if you, at least in my mind, if you think about a fighter pilot, how they're preparing, it might be different than how they practice uh, preparation for a mission. What do we need to do? How do we need to do it? Going worst case scenario, practice is the simulation of trying to actually simulate what a performance is going to look like. So in the sports world, they tend to blend preparation and practice. But my whole thing is your mindset for preparation should actually be a lot of times the opposite of your mindset for performance, mm. humble in preparation, confident in performance. You said in training, you know, we're going to get things perfect. It, it all has to be exactly right. And then you have to be adaptable when you're, when you're out there. Um, so practice to me is just the simulation of the performance yeah. so that you've seen it before. Um, so as I'm hearing you talk about, how you guys would train and how you would prepare. Uh, there's a distinction there that I think often gets blurred. And as a result, uh, performers sometimes struggle with their mindset in performance because they might bring in a humble, a humility to their performance that quite honestly can be crippling. Yeah. Um, and I love humility as much as the next guy, but if you want a great performer, uh, the NBA finals just finished the NHL, just finished and you need to have confidence and you know, those are just sports. Yeah. What, what you're talking about is a matter of life and death. So um, if somebody has to make a decision in a hurricane or 
a tornado or, or something that's really a crisis, in that moment, if they are trying to make it perfect, uh, they're going to struggle. But that perfection isn't all bad. It can be really helpful in preparation. Yeah. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I, I think you're you're absolutely right about the um, the tendency of a desire for perfection to, to paralyze, especially in execution. A lot of times in in a disaster situation, thinking about this as the, the former president of Team Rubicon or on a, a mission, thinking about it as a, uh, a Navy Intel pilot, you're having to choose between a variety of bad options and you're not going to have a perfect decision, uh, but that the worst thing you can do as a leader is, is be paralyzed and not make a decision. Sometimes you just have to call the shot. Uh, instead of sitting there waiting for someone else to do it. Uh, so uh, that that has to be something you're prepared to do and it comes with with confidence. Uh, confidence in your in your training, confidence in your judgment, confidence in your team. Uh, that's absolutely paramount. None of the the things I've done in my professional career uh, have been solo endeavors. I was a Sorry about that. That's okay. I was a uh, a crewed mission commander in Team Rubicon. I led teams into into disaster zones. You you got to have a team around you that that you can count on. How is your experience with Rubicon different than as a uh, pilot? Well, that's a good one. I think as a pilot. Well, let me let me give it a a, a moment's thought. One of the differences is that uh, decisions as a pilot needed to be made much quicker, sometimes instantaneously, uh, because you're moving fast or you know something is is coming that you have to react to instantly. Uh, quite a bit more dictatorial as a mission commander. I mean, you are literally the 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 captain of this airship and and what you say has to be followed immediately. That's how the crew is trained as well. As president of, of Team Rubicon, most of the tough decisions I, I made had a lot more time for for input and when I in, invited it, pushback uh, and um, a lot more collaborative in the process of making these these tough decisions. Uh, but at the end of the day, the the similarity was that the buck stopped with with the leader. You can you can take all the input you want, but you're the one making the decision. And even if you took the wrong input, you don't blame that person. You blame yourself. You're ultimately accountable as as the mission commander of that flight or as the leader of a disaster relief mission. I'm sure there were times where things didn't go according to plan or, or completely swimmingly. How did you handle that when it did happen, when you were back into the debrief? Accountability. You identify the the sources of those mistakes, and you definitely allow room once you're in the debrief, not on the mission, but once you're in the debrief, 
to to hear all sides, but then you you assign accountability. You say this is why it happened. This is who's responsible, and without doing that, you're not going to be able to get it right the next time. You you did something on the question before where I asked you the similarities between uh, you know being a pilot and and leading Team Rubicon, where you said, "Let me give me a minute to just think about that." How often do you do that? How often do you create space for yourself rather than just dive in and give an answer? I'll have to observe, I guess, because I haven't I haven't considered that as a as a a thought process of mine. I know that there are things that I work into my routine that require me to do that, like making sure I get exercise is partly about clearing my head, but partly about giving myself time to reflect away from anyone else, away from the, 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 the crisis of the moment. I'm, I'm sure that's part of why I do that, but yeah, I, I think I fold that into my routine. Anything yeah. else in your routine besides exercise? These days, not a lot. <laughs> These days, we are we are moving at Mach two, and there isn't a whole lot of free time. I actually have to be really insistent now that I'm running for Congress that I set aside that time, and I I've managed to make the case and I've justified it with the team that you know I know we're going to miss some stuff because I'm I'm out on my own doing something clear in my head, but this is important. And they get that now. So you mentioned Congress. So uh, for those that don't know, just give them a reason why, or give them the reason why you've decided to transition and, and go toward politics. You bet. I saw the 2016 election as, well, I took it personally as a punch in the gut because I felt like the the rancor and the division coming from both sides was not at all reflective of the country I had fought for. I thought it was a a betrayal of the buddies of mine who who didn't make it home. And then I realized I could either keep complaining about this or I can step into the breach and do something about it and run a true country over party kind of campaign and restore some civility, restore this this notion that we actually have a heck of a lot more that unites us than that divides us. And ultimately it goes back to the oath of office that I swore as a 22 year old, which was not to a party. It certainly wasn't to any individual, a president. It was to the constitution of the United States. That's what I think we're missing this notion of putting the country first. And let's just say you get elected. Yeah. What does success look like for you? Success is inspiring a new generation of folks to believe in democracy, to believe that we can do more together than by tearing each other apart. There are specific legislative successes that I'll pursue, especially when it comes to my district and the opioid crisis we're going through or uh, the failure of the current Congress to do anything meaningful about health care. But more broadly, I think it's restoring some civility to our politics and restoring this idea that we serve the constitution and the people, not the parties that, that happen to share the same letter after our name. 
I'm going to ask a loaded question. So I'm prefacing sure. it that way, but you've, you know, been part of our military. Uh, we didn't even mention you worked for McKinsey. Um, you have worked for a nonprofit. Uh, you are in politics. Which of those has been most impactful on your life? Well, probably the one you didn't list, which is being a parent, mm. being a, a husband and father informs every decision I make. There's no way I would have left the best job on earth running Team Rubicon Global had I not looked at my three kids and said, unless we change our politics, they are not going to inherit the country I fought for. I think being a a father changes everything. And that actually reminded me, you're also a writer. <laughs> That's right. So you wrote a book with your wife? That's right, yep. So just talk about that book. Great test of a marriage. If you want to know for sure that you're with the right person and we're coming up on our 20th wedding You know, it's funny. I, I saw that you were an author. And then I, I went to Amazon. I saw the book. I was like, oh, maybe I'll read some something about the book. And I'm like, hmm, they have the same name. And then I read what the book's about. Yeah. And I go, I cannot imagine writing a I'm I'm in the process of writing a book right now. The, my wife is actually helping me write it, whether she wants to or not. But I, yeah, can you just give us some insight into what that process was like? Yeah, it was great. It was not just a test of a marriage. I say that I say that jokingly. It was a real opportunity to to do something fun and important together. I mean, I, I want to believe it's an important book. We've we've had a lot of people say it's it's helped them. That for for what it's worth, it's about. Parenting in an age where um, where there's a lot of tension between parents wanting to live lives of purpose apart from their kids, like being a Navy pilot, you don't get to take your kids on deployment with you, and still being a good uh, a good role model, a good parent for your kids, uh, and that that's always been a tension present in our in our marriage and in our parenting. How do you balance that? Uh, the book is called Here Be Dragons, and that title evokes this this warning that used to appear on ancient maps in the the open, uh, unexplored regions of the oceans where they would put this inscription, uh, Here Be Dragons, as a warning against against sailors who ventured too far outside the sea lanes. But as Anne-Marie and I think about how we've lived our lives and how we want our kids to live their lives, we see that, uh, that phrase, here be dragons, less as a warning than an invitation. I mean, the best parts of life happen when you venture outside the well-worn paths, when you travel outside the sea lanes. And, and so we talk about um, going out in search of dragons. I think that's a beautiful place to conclude our conversation. I have many more questions, but uh, maybe we'll talk about that away from the mic uh, or the mics. So I just want to thank you for, for giving you, me the time. And I also want to give you a platform to promote a few things. Uh, first of all, if people want to buy the book, uh, as a parent of two young kids right now, um, <laughs> the uh, metaphor of dragons or 
like landmines is what I thought of, um, <laughs> is, is, that is a challenge. So yeah. parent, and, and I think you're right. When the more purpose driven you are, the bigger, in my, in my estimation, the bigger challenges that yeah. come with raising a family. Um, and certainly in politics, that's, uh, we see story after story about, yeah. about that. Um, but yeah, let us know where we can find the book. And then obviously if people want to get involved with what you're doing politically, uh, would love to have them go to your website and check it out. So, uh, use this as a megaphone. You got to it. Broadcast and the and I, I won't, I won't <laughs> take more than 30 seconds. Uh, here be dragons is, uh, probably the top hit on Amazon. Just, just type it in, uh, and, uh, it's obviously by Ken Harbaugh and Anne Marie Kelly Harbaugh. You're right. We share the same last name and we're running a race in Northeast Ohio, the Ohio seventh for Congress. Uh, Ken Harbaugh for Congress.com is the website. We'd love to have you come check us out. Awesome. And I also want to just give a shout out to team Rubicon. You bet. So where can people find out team Rubicon? Google team Rubicon. And we're always looking for supporters, always looking for, folks with uh, strong backs and good minds to help us out as volunteers. We are, I think, 70,000 strong now and growing. Um, so would love to have you on the team. Very cool. That's Ken, great. thank you so much. Uh, for those that want to follow me on Twitter, at Brian Levinson, and then Instagram, intentional underscore performers. My producer always tells me that I have to do that. So uh, that is where you can find me. Uh, and thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Brian. Honored to be here. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. One of our mottos at Team Rubicon was change your socks. That was about two or three down. Our, our top institutional value was get shit done. Get shit done. It doesn't matter how much talking you do if you're not going to actually execute. And especially in disasters, there are moments where all the planning in the world isn't going to help you. You just need to act. Uh, now, that's not to say we don't plan. We absolutely plan. We plan contingency after contingency. But well aware that the moment boots hit the ground, 90% of that planning is going to go out the window. You need to be prepared to act. <laughs>